This is an Odyssey original. This is KDEX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. If you're looking to get the most up-to-date COVID vaccine, you may have to wait. How long? We'll go in-depth and try to figure it out. If you're a parent, you're probably not surprised to hear that kids are expensive, but a new report explains just how much money you'll need. And also, uh, do you like every social media post you scroll past? You get a like, you get a comment on it, and just uh, interact with everything you see? Well, if you do, that might make you a creep. See, I just go through things and routinely put a thumbs down on things. <laughs> just a big uh, con- mat- contrarian. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter what it is. Yeah, don't I, like it. I even do it on my own. Yeah, don't like it. No, don't like it. Um, so the new COVID vaccines, right? Uh, the government's been telling us, uh, go out, go at, get it. You know, we'll get it as soon as you can because there's a new variant that's been causing some issues. Um, and uh, we started thinking here at KNX, uh, how easy is it going to be? to get these new vaccines because the CDC gave a, an official uh, sign-off on it uh, two days ago, three days ago, actually, now. So uh, between our producer, Donald Morrison, and myself, we canvassed some nine CVS uh, stores all over L.A. and a couple of Walgreens stores, and every one of them said, you know, we don't know when we're going to get them. And in many cases, uh, Donald or I were told uh, maybe the end of next week, maybe the first week of October. That doesn't sound like a great deal of urgency. So we start with the updated COVID vaccines and when we really can expect them. Dr. Melissa Kamora is back with us. She's the president-elect of the California Pharmacists Association. Thanks for being with us again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So this has a, a kind of eerie feel of when the pandemic began and the vaccines first became available and uh, everybody was told, go out and get them. And it was really difficult uh, for a long time to figure out who had them and where to get them. Uh, Why does the rollout this time seem so uneven? So as of right now, um, you know, the, it was just approved three days ago and they are working. Um, there are some locations that have them um, and other locations that are still pending getting them. Um, the distribution is a little bit different um, this year, this time, um, where we are hearing some potential challenges with the shipping of that vaccine um, as manufacturers are getting used to being responsible for receiving these and distributing them instead of going through the federal government. What about the mechanics of it? Do the uh, pharmacy companies have to put in a request? We want this many doses and then they get shipped and then they decide which stores get them. Or does it just automatically get shipped out and the companies have to decide how they're going to divvy them up? No, the pharmacies are ordering them and they are um, they are being sent out as as we're seeing now. Um, not all of the pharmacies have received them, but we are starting to see doses be shipped out um, this week and we expect to see many more into early next week. But, you know, what's interesting uh, is that some of these places, uh, Walgreens and CVS, if you go on their websites, you can book appointments and then you find out they don't have the vaccine anyway. So that sends a very contradictory message to the public because it makes the it, it sort of creates this impression that people don't know what they're doing. And maybe they don't. Do they? I believe they do. I, I think there are maybe some challenges in terms of the expectation that they say they're coming in, maybe from the manufacturer on their distribution truck, but um, maybe aren't haven't been received quite yet. 
and the technology online just may not be updated fast enough as the um, updates of you know what is coming in in stock they get these daily um, and so there may be an expectation that they are receiving in that day um, and then they are a bit delayed um, considering this is just being rolled out like I said we do expect to see many more pharmacies um, having these available early next week. And do you expect this to kind of sort itself out before too long? How long do you think that might take? Absolutely. I, I believe that by early next week, we'll start to be we'll start to see many more pharmacies across the state having these available. Um, and we just have to be patient. As soon as we receive them in the pharmacies, we're ready to begin offering them. Um, and we're excited to get started um, just as soon as they arrive in the pharmacies. All right. And by the way, we should uh, point out that CVS uh, did send us a statement. It says in part that it's pharmacies began receiving COVID vaccines Wednesday and will continue to receive inventory on what they're calling a rolling basis throughout the week. And all CVS pharmacy locations, they tell us, are expected to have the vaccination in stock by early next week, which was what uh, Dr. Kimura was indicating. Right. We want to thank our guest, Dr. Melissa Kimura, president-elect of the California Pharmacists Association. Right now, though, about 13,000 United Auto Workers at Ford, GM, and Stellantis are on strike as no labor deal was reached last night. With us is Brian Moody, executive editor for Auto Trader. Also with us is Yen Chen, who is the principal economist at the Center for Automotive Research. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Brian, let me start with you because, uh, as I'm sure you are well aware, here in Southern California, uh, it's hard to go down more than a mile without coming across a car dealership. Uh, I'm exaggerating, but right. not by much. Uh, how are they going to be impacted if this strike goes on for any period of time? Well, if it goes on for some time, what the result will be that the inventory will start to decline. However, it's important to note that automakers and dealerships have been working for the past year or more to beef up that inventory. So right now, we're sitting in a pretty good spot in terms of how much inventory these dealers have. Most of them, it accepts a few high high desirable models, but it's going to take some time before we start to see the impact of that. And the impact will probably be as inventory drops, prices will go up. And uh, Yen Chen, that's the effect on, you know, auto dealers. But if this does go on for some time, it's going to have a very bad effect overall on the economy because it's going to start rippling out. And eventually that's going to come down to people who aren't even thinking about getting a car, right? Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. So right now, so the stand, the so-called the stand-up strikes only affecting three uh, assembly plants right now. But the, the they... They are not. Uh, um, they are not saying that they, the the further escalation will probably uh, involving in the more plan uh, to join the strike, and that will affect the not not only the local uh, economy uh, but the national economy as well. Brian, um, what about make you know car manufacturers like Tesla and all that? They're not impacted right by this strike. So is this a kind of golden opportunity for places like Tesla to dramatically perhaps increase market share? Well, it, perhaps, although Tesla already has a commanding level of market share when it comes to EVs and luxury cars in general. But there's other automakers, too. Uh, brands like Hyundai, Kia, Nissan, VW, Toyota uh, all have non-union factories. So about 60, let's say 50 to 60% of the market right now are vehicles being produced in non-union shops. So this does have an impact overall, 
but the impact is somewhat more focused. I know people will be tempted to compare it to the COVID times when it was universal, but this is not quite like that. So uh, as far as the dealers are concerned, if you're, say, a Mazda dealer, what have you, you might not be as affected quite as bad, at least not in the uh, in the beginning of this. But eventually, if the strike does continue, wouldn't it affect other automakers, too? Is there some kind of ripple effect for that? It could, but that depends on how much sharing there are for certain parts. Um, I think one of the things that could be impactful for the average consumer would be, say, if you're getting warranty work done and you have to take your car to the dealership where they have to use those parts that are made for your specific car. That's If I was that person I might, and I knew I needed service, I might go in now and get that looked at. But those other automakers, there, there could be limited impact to them because they're just not dealing in the same circles. The exception could be transportation. Uh, let me ask you something, Yen. Uh, before the strike happened, there were lots of stories all over the place um, about what the impact was going to be. And if it was out, if these uh, auto workers are out for, you know, say a few months, uh, even if it's on a kind of rotating basis against the auto worker, uh, auto uh, manufacturers, that it would have a profound effect on the American economy. But I'm wondering if that's not some somewhat um, exaggerated. I, I wonder if, to uh, Brian's point, the fact that so many of our cars that we buy nowadays are made by companies that aren't affected by the strike anyway because they're non-union, um, whether or not it is going to have the kind of impact that a lot of people were claiming it was going to. Um, of course, the, before the the end of the contract expired last night, there's a so there's a many different ways the union could play uh, and uh, based on their strategy against the Detroit Three Company. And of course, the the economic impact study we have now seen in, in the media channels, and uh, is based on the uh, full on strike of the uh, close to one hundred fifty thousand union members. Uh, they all go on strike and uh, shut down all the plan in uh, of the destroy three plan in in the United States. But uh, as far as we see now, the only three plans join the strike, and the, the impact is regional. And uh, um, until the, we see the, uh, the 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 situation going progress, we are still wait anxiously waiting to see how the outcome would be. All right, Yan Chen, thank you so much, a principal economist at the Center for Automotive Research. Also, uh, Brian Moody was with us, executive editor for Auto Trader. Uh, right now, though, a new study finds an American spacecraft left behind on the moon could be causing moonquakes. See, now this is the story I was saying before the break is weird. That is very weird. And people are going to go, what? A spacecraft is causing the moon to quake. And didn't you think when you heard that, that it's weird? I thought it's very, that's the first word that came out of my mouth was weird. And that's what came out of yeah. mine. Too. Well, another word came out, but I can't say that one. Angela Marusiak is a research professor at the University of Arizona's Lunar and Planetary Lab. That sounds like a fun place to work. Uh, she is familiar with the study's findings. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, very quickly, for dumb lay people like me and Charles, uh, uh, how can an American spacecraft, and, and tell us which American spacecraft, how can it cause a moonquake? Sure. Um, so back during the Apollo era, um, we had astronauts um, land on the surface. Um, and of course, we you know wanted to bring those astronauts home. 
Um, but they did leave behind some equipment, um, the largest one being the lunar module. Um, so on the moon, there's no atmosphere. Uh, so the days are really, really hot and the nights are really, really cold. Um, and essentially what happens is the uh, equipment that was left behind, which is made out of metal, um, heats up and cools down during the day or over the day-night cycle. Um, and that's generating uh, what we call moonquakes, uh, specifically because they're caused by these huge temperature fluctuations. Um, we name them thermal moonquakes. Okay, but here's what I guess I don't get. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. these these landing modules, and I kind of remember them from well when they landed. Uh, I mean, they're not. I mean, they don't weigh anything on the moon, do they? I mean, because there's no there's no gravity. No, there's one six. Well, gravity. yeah, but yeah. I mean, but essentially Very they light. don't weigh anything. I mean, my my car weighs probably more. Uh, how does that relatively weightless object on uh, an object as large as the moon is cause, even with the, the temperature fl uh, fluctuations that you just talked about, how does that actually create quakes? Uh, so the size of it doesn't quite matter, I think, in the way that you might be thinking. Um, so in addition to these lunar module quakes, uh, these types of thermal quakes also happen um, just from the soil itself. So you don't necessarily need tons of mass. Um, so it's not like the entire lunar module is like uh, visibly shrinking and expanding. Um, these are very, very small uh, events um, that it's causing. So if I were standing on the moon and experienced a moonquake, would I feel it? Depends where it came from. So for these thermal events, probably not. So to give you an idea, um, in the study that they found, there were about uh, 3,000 events that they were looking at. Um, and the largest one generated um, ground velocities of um, on the order of about um, one micrometer per second. Now on Earth, if you want to feel an earthquake, you really need it to be about an order of like a tenth of a centimeter. So that's a thousand times more motion than what these largest thermal moonquakes are generating. And that's the large ones. Most of them are about like, you know, a third of that size, if not smaller. So yeah, you could be standing right next to the lunar module and you probably won't be able to feel it. So now, if you're getting quakes from say shallow events, uh, those you might be able to feel. Right. So let me make one one uh, giant leap forward for mankind here and ask the question, uh, if we were to get to the point where we colonize the moon, knowing what we now know about how moonquakes uh, can be generated, would that have any implications? Because instead of just having one landing module, we would presumably at some point have whole colonies. Yeah, it's definitely something that we want to think about as we have a more permanent, uh, settled presence on the moon. Um, so for these thermal moonquakes, it's not something that we need to be alarmed about in terms of ground shaking. Um, certainly when you're building your materials, you might want to take this into consideration. Um, but the more data that we can get, the better understanding we have. Um, and much like Earth, you know, we can get quakes essentially coming from anywhere. Um, so some of the moonquakes that we did see from more natural sources were large enough to be felt. Um, so hopefully with additional missions heading back to the moon, um, we can get a better sense of what potential hazards might exist. 
Um, It's probably not going to be on the order of, you know, the hazard in L.A. or California, though. Right. I was going to ask you that because uh, when we're talking moonquake, my understanding is is definitely a lot more limited than yours is. Uh, Very quickly, are there moonquakes like we have earthquakes here? Because as far as I know, the moon is not geologically active, is it? Um. It is, um, but we don't, or the moon does not have plate tectonics. So most of the earthquakes that occur on Earth are caused by these shifting plates. Um, So like the San Andreas Fault is one of those boundaries. And that's why uh, Southern California tends to have a lot of quakes from the San Andreas and also nearby faults. That's not really happening on the moon. Um, The most common type of moonquake are actually really deep down in the mantle. And those are caused by tidal interactions between the Earth and the moon um, but because they're so deep and they're fairly smaller in size, you're not really going to feel them on the surface. You, you know, um, you but know the moon my... is also cooling. And right. as it's cooling, it's shrinking. Um, and that's going to be generating some moonquakes that are probably large enough to be felt, depending on where you are relative to them. Now, I'll tell you where my mind goes in this whole thing. I'm thinking, sure. I'm thinking it's hard enough getting earthquake insurance here. Can you, <laughs> can you imagine trying to get it on the moon? That's oh, what, I that's can't what even I'm imagine thinking. what uh, insurance companies are going to have to come up with on the moon. But, I mean, probably the lack of air uh, is a bigger concern, yeah. I'm guessing, yeah. Yeah, that probably. you might want to mitigate or might, plan out first. Yeah. Lack you of know, air radiation and, might be a little bit of a bigger concern. And, and one-sixth gravity. I want one-sixth off the bill. All right, Angela <laughs> Marusiak, thank you so much. Research uh, professor at the University of Arizona's Lunar and Planetary Lab. Talking about moonquakes caused by spacecraft. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Kids cost money. Uh, There's no secret or surprise about that. If you have a kid, you do need to spend money on them. It's how much money that might have some people surprised. Lending Tree finds it costs parents about $240,000 to raise a kid until they're 18, which is really interesting. Uh, Nicole Mettendorf, who is CEO of Prosper Well Financial, who also is a mother of two. Nicole, uh, we were sort of guessing here in the studio during the break how much it would cost to raise a kid during that span, you know, from, from, you know, birth to 18. And we were all coming in at like a million bucks so correct <laughs> 204 what well, you're saying correct because that's the actual figure how does lending tree come up with two hundred forty thousand dollars that doesn't seem right comparatively it I, seems less yeah right it seems way off i would love to know how they came up with that number because any study and from my own personal research with myself let alone our clients it's closer to a million dollars and that I mean, kids are expensive, <laughs> so I'm not sure where I don't I would assume the 240 grand is that they're not paying for any child care because many of our clients are dealing with the fact that their child care is almost, if not more expensive than their mortgage every month. Yeah, it seems to me like two hundred forty thousand dollars is really just the cost of uh, fast food. <laughs> Pretty much, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Doesn't so, include all their sports, their activities. I mean, the trips that you're taking to the kids. I mean, to me, if anything, I remember when my kids were little, um, I went on TV with my children about the study that came out, and it was 1.1 million at the time, and that was, you know, about nine years ago. So I really wonder how they came up with 240 grand because, it, especially now in this environment that we live in with social media. 
you know, it used to be, if you didn't have the money, you wouldn't go on spring break. Now people feel so much social pressure to go on spring break, even though well, they truly can't afford it. And and like the new iPhone, I think is like 240000 right there. <laughs> it's, it's really expensive. Um, could it be, though, that, that uh, it depends on... Uh, how a parent wants to bring up their kid, and I'm not saying that 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 if you spend less money necessarily, you're you're shortchanging your kid. But you know, there are different ways to raise children, right? There are, there are parents who, because they have the means, you know, their kid becomes old enough to drive, they buy them a brand new BMW, uh, they support them through four years of college, maybe even another two years of grad school, when the kid could go out and I don't know, like get a job. So does it depend on how far? the parents are willing to go in terms of support. Absolutely. And a lot of that support can be just communication and, and helping your children. I mean, I, I believe strongly the more that you have an investment in something personally, the more you're going to appreciate it. And so there's two things that I highly recommend people do is one, you know, you give your kids an allowance and you only buy them certain things. And then it's up to them to buy the rest because, you know, it, it, if I, I don't, my kids don't ask me anymore, mom, can I have this? Because they know if it's something extra and the amount of money that you're going to save yourself is dramatic <laughs> because your kids are not going to be, if, if your kids have to spend their own money, they're not going to be buying that little toy that they think they have to have in that, emo, in that emotional spending moment. And so you're teaching your children the difference between wants and needs. And then the second thing is we use a family 401k. We actually make these shadow boxes and we give them to our clients or people can buy them. But you sit down with your kids and you come up with something that you want together as a family. So for me, the last purchase that, our, that my kids did, we, it was a tube for on the lake behind a boat. It's something I probably would have bought myself, but what happens is, is the kids were like, we want a tube behind the boat. And I'm like, great, let's, you, let's set up, that's the family 401k. That's what that's for. So the kids, we all have a family meeting. The kids go online, figure out and agree on a tube, figure out how much it's going to cost. And it was like $400 or something. And so then they put money into this family 401k. And if they put in $10, I put in $10. Now, fit them, fit, find the match that fits with your budget. Maybe if they put in $10, you put in $1. The concept behind it is that your kids are setting a goal. You're having a conversation. You're figuring out how, things, how much things cost. And you're not getting something instantaneously. Your kids are going to have to wait for it and save for it. And it's going to save you money let alone your kids are going to learn 401k match all of these different terms that are super important for them. Mm. Or you can be like my uh, late dad, God rest his soul, send me out to work the mines when I was five years old and uh, bring the money home <laughs> yeah. and uh, save money that way. There you go. All right, Nicole uh, Bindor, thank you. CEO of Prosper Well Financial and also a mother of two. You know the type, you know, they see something on social media and they have to you know, like it and they have to comment on it. And they spend their entire day doing that. And it's not so good, it turns out. But, uh, if you do that, you might be called a reply guy. That's one term. Or accidental Instagram creep. Uh, Marianne <laughs> Fisher is a psychology professor at St. Mary's University in Nova Scotia, uh, Canada. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So I kind of know what this kind of person would be because I think we've all 
know somebody who is in our friends list or who follows us who invariably will reply to something that you post, and it's almost always to negate what you have said. I like that movie, and then they will always reply, well, the movie sucked because of this. Are we talking about that, or are we talking about something wider? It's, it's definitely wider. So I would give it the context of imagine that uh, you're a woman and there's this guy that really likes you and doesn't know how to express that. And so he just likes and everything you post. He comments on everything you post. He's watching. So it's wider. Oh, and, and hence the the uh, the word creep in there, right? That, that In other words, the person doing it is may or may not actually like what you're posting. It's just that they're trying to make a statement that uh, I'm watching you and yeah. I know what you're up to. And, and, you know, if you went to a restaurant and I like it, it's because I know you went to that restaurant. Is that kind of it? That's exactly. So it's a way of getting attention, right? And sometimes it might be expressing something negative or it might be just, you know, showing that they're watching, right? And they're just paying attention to what you're doing. Is it sometimes a case of where the person who is the victim of this uh, doesn't want to uh, block that person or break off the like re- break off the online relationship because that would create more then create more problems. Yeah, it could. Like imagine if it's at work, right? So it's a coworker, it's someone that you're polite to at work. Um, you don't want to to block them and cause that hostility that could follow from that. But at the same time, how do you confront them, right? So it's it's a real pickle. But what did people do in the dark days before social media? I, I'm sure that the same kind of psychology existed uh, among people how did people express that before they were able to just endlessly like things that somebody posts on social media that's a great question i think we just avoided them right and Ah. that's where social media comes in maybe a bit differently it's harder to avoid someone when it when it's social media because I think uh, from the uh, creeps side of it, they're looking at this as like, well, it's something that's posted publicly. Why should I not comment on everything they do? Exactly, it's in the public domain, right? That's how it feels. Yeah, I was going to say so. so I mean, because it does take two to tango, right? So, I mean, if somebody is endlessly posting, you know, pictures on Instagram of their tuna sandwich, uh, and somebody, you know, is is being a kind of creep and they like it. Uh, I mean, I don't know. You can make the argument. Maybe they shouldn't keep posting pictures of their tuna sandwich. I only yeah, did, that be... once, <laughs> you know, did that once, Charles. It could also be accidental, right? Like it sure. just might be that um, the, the person that's doing the so-called creeping is absolutely unaware. And they're not paying attention to that fact. They like everybody's posts all the time. And they don't have a lot of people in their friend list. So they're, you know, they don't follow a lot of people. So just as coincidence, it's absolutely possible. Um, and they don't have an ill intention, right? So it, that is that is absolutely the way it could be. But liking a tuna sandwich, yeah, that's a little bit strange. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you about that. What if the uh, you know person who's just uh, in the social media world and just gotten used to liking and commenting on everything, and they they don't intend to do that? How uh, is it a good idea to let that person know in case they they're not aware they're doing it? Say, hey, by the way, it is kind of creepier when you do that, or is that still considered a kind of an online faux pas? I'm a big fan of being blunt and upfront. So I would be that person. I would say, hey, you know, like it's it's a little bit strange. So you might just want to scale it back a tiny bit because people might misperceive it. Is this sort of a universal thing? Is it is it I mean, do we see this in, you know, North America, in in Europe, and is it all over the place or are some societies huh? We see it everywhere. We so see it everywhere. 
everywhere, everywhere. Imagine like a parent with a kid, right? Kids away at university. And, you know, you've got mom creeping the kid to say, hey, I'm paying attention, right? And we look at that, we go, oh, that's cringy, but that makes sense. Or, you know, any other culture, absolutely. This exists everywhere. By the way, uh, if you uh, post a link to the show, both Rob and I will like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know why? You know why? Because we're creeps. No. <laughs> so uh, very quickly, what can, if 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 for someone who doesn't, for someone who's afraid of being blunt with somebody and confronting them, right. is there something else they could do? I don't know. I mean, short of blocking them or somehow getting word to them that they're behaving strangely, the only other real thing I think you can do is just ignore it, you know? And if it's not dangerous and it's not causing you to feel really creeped out, then I think maybe ignoring it. All right. Thank you so much. Sadly, you're uh, welcome. That is uh, Mary Ann Fisher, psychology professor at St. Mary's University in Nova Scotia, Canada. But, you know, if you post something about uh, a link back to in-depth and we like it, don't ignore us. No, be, because then we're going to go on your social media site and, right. and not like anything. <laughs> right. We <laughs> yeah. will ignore all of yours. Yeah. Let that be a lesson. That's it for KNX In-Depth for this week. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to be back on Monday.